The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Shall we begin? Smiley is a suspicious person. You won't know who to trust. Let's begin. Hello fellow spy nerds, welcome back to Spies Like Us, the podcast where David and I like to talk about the representation of tradecraft on screens big and small. Um... This week we are talking about uh, one of the one of the big ones in spy film history. It's 1965's uh, The Ipcress File. That's a British film, quite a famous one, starring Michael Caine. In fact, it's one of his breakout roles. Um, let's talk about the timing of this episode just a bit. As of right now, the TV series, the TV miniseries, is going to come out in Britain on ITV next month they still even though like next month is only like nine days away they still haven't said exactly what day in march but i thought it'd be fun to do the movie alongside the tv series um not sure how the timing's gonna work out because again we don't know exactly when that's gonna drop but um it's worth mentioning i kind of went back and forth on whether or not to do the movie first or second because What if you haven't seen either? Maybe you're excited about the TV series. Well, the movie discussion might give away important spoiler type stuff. Um, But uh, I'll just say, I'll just put that out there and say, if you haven't seen either and you're really looking forward to the TV series, possibly skip this episode. Put this on pause right now wait for the TV series thing to come out, and then come back to this episode. But if you want to, we won't be getting into spoilers, at least until we finish talking about the context of the movie. So you could stick around with us for a bit if you want. We'll definitely throw out the... It's when we go into the briefing room. That's when we'll be getting into the spoilers. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Um, British film. It is based on a book by Den Layton. Uh, it's a pretty realistic film until it's suddenly not, I think is fair to say. Um, the focus is on British intelligence agencies also involved are the CIA and the plot assumes some enemy agency that is unnamed and doesn't make any direct appearance in the film. Yeah, they don't name it, but that one guy running the, 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 the experiment thing, he's Albanian. Okay. I don't know if there's like an Albanian intelligence agency or if that was just some science guy. Okay. I think it's reasonable. I think you're like the first guess I would make is it's the Soviets that are behind the nefarious plot. Right. And that would be backed up by the fact that it is indeed the Soviets in the book. Mm. So that's probably the case. Um the British intelligence agencies are also not explicitly named in this film, as far as I can tell. But I, I don't remember hearing anything. Okay. The Ministry of Defense, I think, is the only official. I, I saw a plaque for that or something. We do know that. Um, let's see, who's who's the guy that Palmer is working for at first? Ross. Ross. We do know that Ross's is a military intelligence uh, bureau and Dalby's is civilian. 
Um, they kind of Dolby's kind of like FBI. Well, he did say he was counterintelligence. Dolby said that, so I, I, I guess he would be kind of an an FBI if he's doing domestic stuff. Sure, and it could just be like kind of a chain of command uh, kind of thing. But uh, so I I I thought oh, okay, well let's peer into the book wiki and see if there's any insights there. Um, in there, we find out that uh, at least the agency that Palmer gets transferred to, Dolby's agency, is a fictional one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small agency called WOOC and then a P in parentheses. So I guess Wook P uh, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um, <laughs> is described as one of the smallest and most important of the intelligence units in the book. And in case you're wondering, no W O O C doesn't stand for anything, or at least uh, Len Dayton never even bothered to think about what it might stand for. A little odd. Um, We'll find out what they do in the TV series. I'm expecting maybe some changes, maybe some updates. I'm not even sure if the TV series is set in the sixties. That could change quite a bit. Of, of oh stuff. yeah, they as don't really as... give you a timeline of what's going because there's nothing really in the world going on. It's just this kind of one thing. Sure, um, I'm, I'm guessing it's pre World War Two ish though, or maybe during because you know there's a whole thing about physicists, and that was like really big for World War Two stuff. Oh no! I think this is con- I think this is contemporary. I think this oh, is the okay. sixties. Okay. Yeah. Um, the CIA is uh, not mentioned in the books wiki. The CIA does get mentioned in here. Instead, in the book, he referred to those same characters as being part of ONI, mm-hmm. uh, which is the U.S.'s Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, Again, not sure what they'll do in the TV series, but ONI is far older. Do you know this agency at all? Oh, Naval Intelligence? Oh, yeah. yeah. If, if you've ever gone down any conspiracy rabbit hole, just, you know, up late at night, the, the, anytime you, like, start, like, reading some of the aliens stuff or, like, the Hollow Earth stuff, they're always going to bring up naval intelligence. Or somebody claims to be naval intelligence or something. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I think they were... Well, because you remember the OSS, right, was mainly World War II. Mm-hmm. Part, of the, part of the reason why the CIA was developed was because all of the military intelligence agencies weren't really con- communicating so uh, Owen and I would have been one of the bigger ones. Right. Yeah, I do believe they are uh, one of the bigger ones and still exist today. They are far older than the CIA. In fact, they were founded in 1882. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, as you might expect from the name, throughout their history, they have been mostly concerned with, well, naval intelligence, like the movement of fleets and, and stuff. But it is true that during the time of this book and film, they had expanded their mandate to include major criminal and security matters. So in 1965, it might make sense for these CIA guys to have actually been ONI. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's also just possible that maybe, you know, I don't think the CIA was getting much uh, attention or mention in films at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible that maybe Len Dayton uh, simply was more familiar with ONI than CIA. It's possible that maybe he thought it would be crass to mention mm-hmm. the CIA. Um, not sure. But uh, I'm betting that the TV series will be CIA, uh, which I think is just going to be perhaps more faithful, possibly more faithful to the historical setting of 65 Britain, definitely more recognizable by the general TV audience. These days, Mm -hmm. everything's CIA, right? Yeah. Well, and I hope I hope the show's and it's probably going to be contemporary for the show, which would be interesting. Because you know, when I was watching this, and and we get to like the big reveal of what the Ipcrest is, and that like it just reminded me how much like mind control was a thing back in the day. Like it was in so many different movies. Um, like there, there, you know, this is like the Red Scare type of stuff, where oh, yeah. like they're using mind control on people, and they got serums, and they got things, you know. You don't really hear about it too much these days, and and there is quite a bit of mind control going on. And I don't know if people just kind of gave up, or if they they just don't care, or they're not paying attention. So I I think a contemporary Ipcris file dealing with, um, you know, social media and propaganda, and uh, you know, like all the stuff that's been going on. I I think that would be really cool to watch. Uh, if if that becomes a thing, or if they're they're just going to use some new state of the art drug or something, or like a chip, I, I don't know. I'm I'm interested to see how they're going to make this contemporary. Right. I did just check, and the TV series is going to be set in the Cold War. So. Oh not, really? They're not. Yeah, they're not. They're not going to modernize it. Oh okay. Um, well, whatever. It'll still be cool. I'm uh, excited. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm excited for for either. Um, this is going to be, this is an interesting one to talk about in terms of, uh, the film's production. Um, it has got, of course, you know, it's 1965. It's the heyday of James Bond. Everyone, you know, wants to be Bond or be Bond-like or set themselves as an alternative to Bond, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what we have here. Um, but more than that, this, uh, film is got a lot of bond people involved in it uh number one right at the top harry saltzman the co-producer of the old bond stuff um is the producer of this he is today best known along with albert broccoli for the bond films but before bond he had been most associated with a brief cultural movement in Britain called kitchen sink realism, which was mostly known for uh, focusing on the working class uh, in a way that hadn't really been seen in film before and Mm. for kind of a gritty realism, which I feel like that's what we're getting in this film. Yeah. Um, With all those feet shots. Sorry. Oh, feet shots. You mean, <laughs> yeah. When uh, when G- D- Dalby and and Ross were walking down the bridge, and we just got like all these cuts back to their faces and their feet, and I was like, "What is up with these feet shots? Is it supposed to make me feel like ominous?" Or I, yeah. Um, but spe- speaking of Bond, uh, 
I really wanted to point out that even though Palmer is not as sleazy as Bond was in the earlier earlier films, he's still kind of like you know, like when he first when Courtney when he finds Courtney is an apartment, he's like ordering her around. You know, like when he gets to the new office, he's checking out the secretary's ass type of thing. So it's not like they've eliminated like they didn't make him like a gentleman. He's still kind of like a fast playboy. Dude, it's still the sixties. Yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. Um there's like five other Harry Palmer movies, or maybe it's a total of five. And uh yeah, I'm pretty sure womanizing is still like kind of a feature of the character. Um just not well, at least based on this movie, not not quite as cringy as uh Mr. Jim Bondworth. Right. <laughs> um but yeah, I could totally see how Saltzman might have seen this as an opportunity to like build on his Bond cachet mm-hmm. while also maybe getting to do movies that are more like what he was personally interested in stylistic wise. Mm-hmm. So it might be that the case that it's broccoli that's bringing all the like globe trotting, uh, expensive sports cars, yachts, and uh, volcano villain bases kind of stuff. Like all that super, that glitz, that Bond glitz, you know? That might be uh, coming more from the broccoli side of things. Not 100% sure. But uh, yeah, it's not just uh, um, Saltzman. He also brought over uh, the production designer, the film's editor, and the score composer. Um, I did really like the music in this film. Uh, yeah, it had that. It had that same like guitar, where I was like waiting for the Bond theme to start, but it was like different. You I like the jet. Ja- I like the jazzy noir sax kind of stuff. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um. The okay, the director is Sidney J. Fury. Um, it's this is his best known film, and I think the direction is one of the majorly successful parts of this movie. Um, in fact, yeah, direction, editing, and score, I would say, are the film's strengths. Plot, I'm gonna say, not so much. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Uh... I, I would agree. Um, you know, uh, going through our notes, uh, you definitely pointed out, like, we never really get to figure out the motivation behind anything other than, I guess, you know, and, and if this is post-World War II, I'm not sure what they're trying to stop from scientists. You know, like, tech tech has already pretty much gotten out there. Um, yeah. I, 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 we, we didn't get a whole lot of why is this all happening? It was more like we're just kind of along for the ride of this kind of waiting for the big twist at the end. Sure. Sure. Um, The, the film reminds me of another film from the same year that we covered and loved, which was a samurai spy uh, by Shinoda in that uh, this film's camera placement is very, very active and dynamic. Like right. uh, the choice the the you know, they never, they never put the camera in just the obvious place or, or they very frequently put it in surprisingly 
surprising and interesting spaces. Uh, a lot of it too in this film has um, like a lot of frames where there's stuff in the foreground, like really close to the camera that you're like looking through uh-huh. or or past that is in the same focus as like what's in the background. And that was actually a uh, like a new film technique that had just come out in 63. So knowing that, I think you really can look at this film and see that the director and the editor are like playing with their new toy. <laughs> right. You know, you know what I mean? Like they're, yeah. they're, they're really trying to stretch it and see how much, how much they can, how much they can make with that. Um, I think one of the most impressive shots is the one where uh, Palmer finds someone dead. We'll, we'll, we won't say who yet uh, until the briefing room. Um, and the reveal of the dead person is a camera shot through the top of a ceiling lamp. Lamp? Do you, do you put lamps on the ceiling? I don't know. Like the light is hanging from the ceiling. You know, it's got a shade on it. The camera's looking right down through it. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. That was really cool. You know, yeah, crazy good way. Yeah. And the and the frame of the of the lamp makes a crosshair on the guy. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, beautiful. Um, there was also okay. Then there's the red thing, um, which I tipped you off. I, I had no. Uh, found some mentions on wiki about the significance of red in this movie and i tipped you off to to look for it and see if you would independently come up with a theory of what you think red signifies in the film or how it's I, used i certainly did um but i don't think they were consistent because england on its own just has red everywhere you know they, they got the the double decker buses they got the phone booth they got you know but they the the filmmaker definitely wanted to use a lot of red. Um, there's that scene at the end when Dolby's on the phone. Uh, uh, well, I don't know, but and and there's the the lamp's shade is bright red. So I don't know if there's just a lot of red in England, but it seems to me that they did play with red. Um, one of the things I noticed was the ties. Um, and I thought there was something going on with that up until uh, Dolby and Ross's tie would turn into like a green. And like, I was like, what the hell? Cause I think Ross starts out with like uh, a blue and red tie stripe. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, oh no, uh, Ross starts out with a blue and red stripe tie. And then Dolby starts out with like a blue one. And then he has a blue and red striped one. And so I don't know. There, there was a lot of moments where I felt like red meant danger. Like, like I think the first really big red in your face is like the title shot where he's uh, where Palmer's making his coffee and he's like this bright red coffee holder thing, you know, like those little giant. Uh, it's not a can, but like, you know, like those like if you want to put the coffee from the can into like a container like type of thing. And, and, and so throughout the film, the, the use of the red kind of made me feel like some, someone's in danger, but then I also was kind of thinking, oh, maybe it's like team red and team blue um, because uh, Ross and Dolby keep switching back and forth between red and blue ties. But then they, then like all of a sudden Dolby has a green tie, but what I really fucking liked uh, and, and that's why, sorry to take so long to circle back to this. What I really fucking liked 
was, you know, Ross starts out with a blue and red tie that's like striped. Okay. And, and you start seeing their ties change throughout the film. Um, uh, and, and Dolby at one point has a blue and red striped tie. It's got like a yellow stripe in it, um, but it's still like blue and red. At, at the end scene, um, you know, the big scene, like who's the bad guy? Is it Ross? Is it Dolby? Is it Ross? Is it Dolby? You know, they're both wearing their blue and red striped ties. So I don't, I don't know if it's supposed to subconsciously be just messing with the audience to, to try and make you feel safe. Cause there's times where like this guy should be the bad guy and he's got the blue tie on, you know, mm-hmm. and, or like where the film is trying to make you think he's the bad, you know, like there's the grocery store scene with Ross. He's wearing a blue tie. He doesn't have his red and blue striped one. And, 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 so, but that scene makes you feel like he is the bad guy. So maybe the blue tie is telling, you know, like, so to, to make a long story short, uh, I definitely noticed the red, but I don't think they were as consistent as, as we would have liked them to be. But considering the time period, I'm not sure that people were as anally detailed as they would be these days. You know what I mean? Okay. Okay. Well, I just realized we, I can't actually completely confirm what red means without going into spoilers so uh but i'm gonna say you're you're basically right and i agree with you um yeah red is supposed to give be giving clues of who's on what team Mm -hmm. and i also agree with you that it's not super consistent because no when i rewatched it knowing that Mm -hmm. uh i noticed a whole bunch of places where the rule is not exactly followed right (laughs) Um, but okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, so uh, visually, a really fun film. Um, really fun. And that makes it surprising to me to find out that Saltzman and Fury did not get along at all or see eye to eye on the making of this film. Um, Saltzman barred Fury, that's the director, Uh, from the editing room and actually claims that Fury was fired from the production early in the shoot and that the film's editor, again, this is Peter Hunt that had been the editor of the Bond films up till now, uh, gave him the director's chair. Now, Hunt denies this and says that he only edited the film, but uh, uh, he's not listed as director in the credits. So um, there's, there's, Lots of evidence of prima donna behavior on both <laughs> Saltzman and Fury's part. Right. Right. Uh, uh, on one hand, in a later interview, uh, Michael Caine said that he frequently took Saltzman aside and told him he was being unnecessarily rude to people on the set. And on the other hand, on the very first day of shooting, the director gathered the cast and said, this is what I think of the script. And then set it on fire in front of everyone. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's why everybody's such a dick in this film. Like, <laughs> that's something that kind of caught my attention. I was just like, "Why is everybody such a dick?" And I, I, I just kind of chalked it up to kind of British wit, you know, or like British stoicism. And like, you're in the spy world, so like, you know, it's kind of like when you watch like political shows, like they all kind of bust each other's balls type of thing. But like, there's a lot of moments where like, why are you being such a dick? You know, like I remember when uh, when they went to go find the the bald bodyguard at Blue Jay in the jail, and the cop was like, "Oh, we got everything under control. We're waiting for Palmer." And he just pulls out his thing. He's like, "I am Palmer," but like, just shoves it in his face. And I'm like, "Okay, 
Like, there's a lot of like unnecessary dick shit going on. Uh, yeah. So, so maybe I, like, <laughs> uh, I agree that the British stoicism is uh, on full display, <laughs> especially <laughs> in the scenes between Ross and Dolby are practically making a contest out of it with yeah. each other. On, on a, who who can who can out stick up my ass the other guy <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> um so yeah that's the that's the people who produce the movie michael kane uh no time here to talk and we'd be wasting our time everyone knows michael kane's fucking awesome yeah um he's an absolutely legendary actor uh he's one of only four male actors who have been nominated for an academy award for acting in five different decades Oh, wow. And he is in seven films that featured in the British Film Institute's 100 Greatest British Films of the 20th Century, of which this is number 53. Oh. Well, I mean, he's definitely not a lightweight. Even as a kid, I could recognize him as, like, amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, I, 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 like, distinctly remember... Muppets uh, Christmas Carol where he played Scrooge and then and then <clears throat> there was like an old comedy with I think it was Richard Pryor and uh, was it Dan Aykroyd? No, it was I don't remember. Uh, the point is it was called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, and, yeah. Well, yeah. I was going to mention that I, that's my favorite Michael Caine movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm I'm running to to go rewatch that. That's uh that's him and Steve Martin. Steve Martin, that's right. Why did I think? Well, anyway, uh, yeah, no, he. I, I remember him like, he, like he always had that kind of class to him. So seeing him in like this gritty, like, uh, kind of I'm gonna do what I want type of role was kind of fun to watch. Because you know, uh, as an American and growing up with like him in his later in, in his career, he's he's often given that like old sage you know like he played alfred in the nolan batman films you know what i mean so he's, sure. he's got kind of that class you know uh to him versus like with this he's he's kind of like the rowdy you know young upstart type of character it is it is fun to see him throwing a little snark uh mm-hmm. around around the screen yeah um, <laughs> but yeah this uh this is his second major film here. So he's just, he's just popping. Um, he did Zulu the year before. I've never seen that one, but uh, the guy that plays Dolby was also in that film mm-hmm. uh, with him. And this is also uh, interesting in that it's the, apparently the first film where the male protagonist wore glasses and it's so hard to think of that as being um revol not revol well i guess kind of revolution i mean if you're someone that wears glasses and you know, yeah. <laughs> the first movie you've ever seen where the heroes also wearing glasses that's got to that's got to do something for you but it was actually so weird at the time that um there were concerns that the fact that he wore glasses and the fact that he liked to cook the audience would audiences would read that as he's gay. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got to love the 60s. Different times. Different yeah. times. Different times. Um 
Speaking of his looks, though, there, there was a couple times, especially when he was in the cell, where, where he really looked like Gene Wilder, which kind of weirded me out because I, I, I never would have put those two together, you know, like in my head. But I, it just kind of he, – he had this kind of – Smile, you know, was with where, where his hair was all frazzy and stuff, and he just kind of had. Oh, this- you know what? It's the smile. It's the smile. I was scratch. I was like, I don't know what Dave's talking about here. <laughs> yeah, keep keep going. Yeah, the smile. Yeah, well, he's in the cell, and he's got these like expressions, and like the way he rolls around and stuff. And I, I, I don't know. It was just screaming Gene Wilder to me. So I, I wonder if that's kind of what helped Gene Wilder up into the stage. You know what I mean? Like. But I, I don't know. I, I don't want to keep going down that role. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Michael Caine's going to go on to play Palmer in four more films. So, yeah. Or wait. Yeah. He's in four more Palmer films. What? Which, yeah. We got to watch these. <laughs> <laughs> he's a great character. He's yeah. definitely he's definitely a character I would want to see more of. Um. I can, I, yeah, I, I can see it. Um, only two of which are based on uh, Dayton novels. There are a total of eight of those. Mm-hmm. His last performance as Palmer was as recently as 1996, Midnight in St. Petersburg. And there was one other Palmer novel that was adapted to film that was not Michael Caine. And that was in 1974. And in that one, they renamed the character. So I guess technically Michael Caine is so far the only actual Harry Palmer. Um, and Caine appears in multiple other spy movies as well. We this, But this is our first. This is our first round with Michael Caine, isn't it? It is. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to see these other ones. <laughs> we should do yeah. a we should do like a whole uh, series on these. I don't know. Maybe this should be our movie setup from 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 going here because I I would love to just talk about Kane playing spy films. <laughs> okay, <laughs> can definitely talk about that. Uh, the Palmer character is cited by Michael Myers as being a major influence on the Austin Powers character. Was that why he played his dad? That is why he played. His dad. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh Harry Palmer is weirdly not meant his name is never mentioned in all of the eight novels. Uh it's they're told in first person, and uh that seems like a pretty weird trick, but Dayton managed to get through eight novels about one guy and never tell us what his name was. How did how did they find the name? Um, okay. There's a story with that. Uh, they were sitting around talking about names and Michael Caine said it should be something boring like Harry and, uh, Harry Zaltzman, the producer shot him an angry look. across the table. <laughs> um, but they, they followed along with that. And, uh, Michael Caine said, well, uh, he got the Palmer name from, it was some schoolmate of his that he remembered from years back who had been like a really, how do I put this? A really, really hard to notice person. Oh, um, you know, someone you just wouldn't look at twice. So there's He's, no Harry Palms joke 
in this. I don't. I don't know how that got past. How that <laughs> got past. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we get a park bench in this movie, but we don't get to sit on it. Um, but it is pretty cool that, uh, uh, they arrange a meeting at a park bench just by citing it's, uh, it's number, I guess, I guess they're all numbered in Britain or something. Yeah. That was like, I, I didn't know what that was. I, I, I guess that's a thing. It just shows like, uh, my American ignorance. <clears throat> Um, but I like I like that idea of being able to have that conversation on a phone and arrange a meeting place uh, by a code word that, uh, you know, actually represents something. And I guess, you know, I guess they're thinking, well, the enemy has not gotten wise to the fact that when we say these numbers, we're referring, referring to different park benches all around London. Um, so, yeah, not only a park bench, but a park bench with a code name, which uh, is is definitely something that we would get excited about in this podcast. (laughs) Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. David, right off the bat, uh, this movie has uh, an element that happens over and over that's something you frequently like to complain about on this podcast. (laughs) Do you know what it is? A lot of windows. A lot of windows. Um, yeah. Um, th- this one didn't bother me so much because it was like two people. Uh, other than, but like, you know, th- th- this always calls back to that uh, Jason Bourne film um, where they had the entire team like on like the uh, top floor of some like, you know, the, the, I think I made the comment of like <clears throat> how a lot of new corporate ideas is this idea of transparency and like there's no walls. It's all just windows. And and that like really bothered me. One thing that did bug me though, and, and I was going to mark this as like my uh, worst trade craft, but I, I decided to pull it out because I was a little weirded out. Like when I first started the film, I kind of wanted to go back to our old podcast where we like made a joke about the movie. Like we should just call this like not closing the door file because of how many <laughs> times people complain about him not closing the door. Um, and uh yeah, it kind of it kind of bugged me because he. It seems like he's already been seasoned in his. Like, I guess he just was doing surveillance or something. And and like just him not closing the door. But then I kind of realized this might be character development that he's supposed to be kind of like an obstinate. You know, like his whole like they bring up his military past that he was just like a pain in the ass and like would fuck around and joke and shit. So I, I guess it it wasn't him not closing the door. I don't know. I thought there was more of a significance to it, but I like I, I searched the film for some point where he left a door open and it like hurt him, and that like never happened. Ah. It was literally just at the beginning. Um, well, the movie does like to poke fun at British stuffiness and well, and bureaucracy. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of seemingly uh, redundant paperwork. Yeah, and uh, and and stuff like that, and it's a. I think it's a nice clue. The double the the two twin scenes of him coming into a superior's office and and not closing the door behind him, and I think in both of them they notice that without looking, yeah, away from their windows, right? So they're they're very twin scenes, which I think is meant to say that 
something about you know no matter where you go in this structure like all these people are the fucking same <laughs> you know yeah. and and they all get annoyed by the same uh little things um so yeah closing doors and big windows and pretty sloppy uh you know uh, okay having meetings next to big windows where it's easy to surveil i don't know it feels like they're not they're not really as sophisticated Mm -hmm. in 1965 as what we expect to see in our movies from like the 90s and the 2000s um and not just on a technological level uh the way that they treat um you know important case files and paperwork just i mean just don't they don't really seem to be thinking hard about keeping everything uh airtight Right. Uh, that little joke of a drawer that he sticks the Ipcrest file in uh, <laughs> with the little key, you know, looks like something you could just pop open with a bottle opener. Right. Um, uh, but yeah. So let's put up our big repeat spoiler warning here because we're going to go right into the uh, plot of the movie. And uh, because there are people that are. Uh, working with secret motivations. I like to just lay out what's really going on at the beginning. So as we go through, we can check off, like, is this person actually acting in a realistic way based on what we know in hindsight about their motivations? Yeah. Um, I want to tackle this. I want to take, you know, just kind of like uh, different characters or sets of characters and talk about them up to the point where they recover Radcliffe. And that's the abducted scientist from the first scene of the film. And after that, we'll just kind of go into the whole mess, uh, like as, as it, un- as it unfolds, but to kind of keep things a little organized, uh, I just want to start with Grant B and Dalby who are last chance spoiler are villains. Mm-hmm. Um, Grant B is, I presume maybe he's actually a Soviet agent, but, or maybe he's working for the Soviets. He's working for somebody bad. This is Blue Jay, right? That's Blue Jay. Oh, okay. I think they said he was Albanian, but you're right. He's probably working for the Soviets. Mm -hmm. Now he's got, he's developed the technique of basically brainwashing people. Uh, he can make them forget things and he can uh, kind of code instructions and, and key phrases uh, to um, incite compliance with instruction. Mm-hmm. Um, what he's doing with it is he's abducting British scientists, basically, uh, you know, hip hip hypnotically lobotomizing their scientific prowess. Like he's telling them, you don't you don't remember anything about physics or something like that. And then he puts them back on the street and they suddenly find out that they can't do science anymore and end up quitting their jobs. Um our principals don't know that that's like the scheme yet at the beginning of the film, it's just Ross who has noticed 
a disturbing pattern of uh, a lot of scientists quitting and a lot of them, uh, a, a significant number, 17 in fact, uh, have quit for no reason that anyone can determine. Mm-hmm. And he's weirded out about that. Um, I think maybe I could think of more interesting applications for this hypnosis thing. Like, uh, you know, in I don't know, instead of just crippling the scientific um, prowess of the British, you could turn these guys into unwitting agents that could tell you what they're working on. Um. Any thoughts on that? Any thoughts on just this mind control hypnosis thing? I mean, you said before, like you're you're kind of you're let's see, open to the idea mm-hmm. of the possibility. Um, I I don't really get. I mean, well, I, I I'm open to the idea of it being plausible that they might be able to pull something like this off, but I don't get what they're doing. Like what? What the purpose? Considering the time, like, other than if you were to write a story uh, like this, people would have known like how important physicists were at that time. Considering like this would have been post like atomic bomb or something. I just mm-hmm. I, we don't ever really get the motivation behind what it is they're doing. Right, right. Which I I I agree is like to me is kind of a weakness mm-hmm. uh, in the film. Now, Dalby is working with Grantby. Dalby has uh, his motivation. We never find out, um, but he's he's on Team Red, and he's helping Grantby out from within uh, the Wook Agency in ways that are not super clear to me uh, or or make sense. Like, think okay, let's think about it this way. I'm not okay. So what I'm talking about here is like, how is Dalby helping Grant B in general? We see how he helps him out in this specific case. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, this scientist Radcliffe that disappears at the beginning of the film, he was under basically under Dalby's protection mm-hmm. officially. Um, so the, I mean, I kind of was weirded out by the opening scene where the guy, the the security guy that's with Radcliffe seems so paranoid looking around everywhere like, you know, something could happen at any moment and then just puts the guy on the train alone. Um, You know, like, why are you so careful with the package and then suddenly you're not? Mm -hmm. Well, one answer to that could be that Dalby, you know, gave him, you know, set all this instruction up. And he's doing it in a way. So he's setting Grant B up to know exactly when and where the scientist will be vulnerable to being lifted. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, was it also the case of the other 16 scientists? Like, did they all disappear under Dalby's? Um, or did did they all retire shortly after? I don't know. Is Dalby just in charge of this in general? And I feel like he's not because he complains about it to Ross. Like it feels like this was a a single incident and that he's like, you know, my agency isn't really set up for this kind of security thing. Uh, I don't know why you're making me do it. 
And if Ross suspects Dalby, then I especially don't know why Ross would be. And we know that Ross suspects Dalby. So why is he still putting scientists through the Dalby, you know, into uh, reach of Dalby? Um, one thing I wanted to point out, it's I, I felt Dalby's character was really well written um, as far as putting on the face. Uh, I like, you know, I, I, I think he did a really good job of hiding the fact that he was on the inside. And I think one motivation that we're not really told might be money um, simply because they paid 20 grand uh, to, to get Radcliffe back. So I'm, I'm guessing Dobby would be in on that money. And um, <clears throat> we don't know that that exchange actually had happened with the other 16 scientists, but I'm sure if Russia's behind this, they have plenty of money to just throw at Dalby. And that's probably his primary motivation, especially since uh, the first time that Ross and Dalby share a screen together, Ross kind of like demeans him. He's like, I'm the one that put you here. You're kind of a smug, you know, bastard, whatever. I'm the one that got you to this place. And you know what? You're losing these scientists and you're fucking up. And I think the excuse that I'm not prepared, like my department doesn't have the resources to do this might be a cover for him not being able to handle the job. Okay. There's also the fact, you know, like it seems, you know, the comment of, uh, about him having been a passed over major, he might have some, you know, uh, career resentment, right. uh, which would be specifically targeted toward the military but then on the other hand this guy ross apparently hooked him up with this cushy job that um you know is apparently kind of a a good job yeah so yeah um yeah it's the this is a film where it's it's the stuff people are doing as their cover looks great but trying to think through what they're actually like why they're actually doing what they're doing behind the scenes is not especially well thought out, or maybe it's very well thought out in the books, but this movie is more concerned with, um, uh, you know, a certain uh, feel, a style, uh, a, a mood uh, than it is with, with uh, having a secure plot. Also, I mean, we're... It's hard to quibble here when the movies coming out, you know, the same year are like James Bond movies and The Man Called Flintstone and Our Man Flint. <laughs> right. Um, just overall, there's not really, I don't think, a lot of sophistication in the thinking about intelligence and how it works in the 60s. Yeah. Just kind of people are just more uh, about the glamour of it or in right, this case, right, right. The, the grittiness of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so those that's those guys. Um I got some minus points for Dolby where uh okay, so you mentioned Ross chews him out about the uh missing scientist transfers Palmer into Dolby's department. We'll talk about that later. Uh the very first thing Dolby does as he gathers his team together and says, "Hey, we got to find the scientist." He immediately rules out all other suspects except for Grant B, who he's supposed to be secretly working with. Mm -hmm. Now, 
on one hand, I guess you could say this is a master werewolf play. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, I think it's just the the uh, scriptwriter not really thinking through uh, what what Grant B would be thinking and doing, um, knowing or I'm sorry, yeah, Dolby. Did I say Grant B? Um, there was at least one other guy that you know was a possible suspect. And yeah, they said like, okay, the French reported that he was like arrested like a year ago or something, but why not say like, yeah, but who knows what those fucking French guys, you know, know about it. We're going to split, at least split the team in half and send Mm -hmm. half of them after Grant B and half of them after ghosts or even more if you can. I mean, I agree. Don't definitely don't take any chances of like pretending that you really, really think it couldn't possibly be Grant B, Mm -hmm. but why just immediately laser focus your entire team's attention on the guy who's really your main job is, uh, you know, behind the scenes is to protect and to keep a secret. Right. So didn't like that. Um, now he didn't think that he didn't, I mean, he told him to all go and check out like all the different places Grant B. Uh, was last known to hang around. And maybe he does know that Grant B doesn't actually hang out at any of these places. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. He does have this, the team kind of spinning their wheels in that sense. But the way we find Grant B is that Palmer, who just likes to do things his own way, says, fuck this. This is a stupid way of going about it. I'm going to go down to the police station and run the plates or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um do you know exactly what he's doing there at the police station? Are you talking about when Palmer goes to visit the the bodyguard guy? It's no, I'm talking about when he goes he he goes to find out that uh, Grant B's got a whole bunch of parking tickets. I mean, that's what he finds out at I guess the police station. I guess he just ran the guy's asked them to run the guy's license plate or something. Like this seems like such incredibly basic detective work. That I'm annoyed that it's in here, that we're supposed to be even the slightest bit impressed. <laughs> that, that this is like some kind of out of the box thinking. Well, back to your point about like ignoring the French uh, possibility as a suspect, the, the, the guy that's locked in a French prison. Um, it seems like they're 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 trying to cover their bases, but still like you know to to corral us into this one story for the sake of time, you know, because it's like one film, you know what I mean. But they don't want to ignore the fact, like, well, how come is it, it's this guy? They're like, well, there was actually this guy and this guy, but this guy's in a prison, so it possibly couldn't be him. And then it's like, well, let's do our due diligence. Oh, look, he's got parking ticket. You know, like there's a few things like that that I. And I mean, this goes also back to the time, like as far as the dialogue goes um, in this film, it's it was like a time where like so much dialogue was on the nose of just like trying to just put information in your head. You know what I mean? Uh And I I think that might be what that is. Okay. Yeah. 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 But but you're I mean, you're right. Like we're, we're we're not. We're, we're we're not going to be impressed about that like these days, especially not after what was it three days to the Condor, where where we actually got to watch like you know our our, our bro like you know go through the full like detective work that he did to like narrow it down to this one person. You know what I mean? Um, 
I, I think is uh, I think that's what we're we're hoping to get on something like that. But I think I, I think I think it's true that by the seventies, a lot more sophistication starts to creep in in the portrayal of intelligence uh, type yeah. stuff. Um, here, it's just kind of just kind of enough to make make the motions and say spy spy type stuff and and the audience is all into it yeah um, <laughs> but uh yeah this movie wouldn't wouldn't have worked for me at all if it wasn't uh just fun to look at uh, right. and listen and listen to um, yeah so palmer finds grant b at the i don't know the library um, and Grant B gives him a flyer with a disconnected number on it. And the flyer is for, uh, like a military band performance that's coming up soon in the park. Uh, I'm annoyed at the fact that Palmer doesn't notice this at all. Uh, he just calls the number says, Oh, it's what? Well, it's disconnected. Oh, I, that's you know. what the, that's why they went to that concert. Holy yes. shit. I should have put I didn't notice that. I, I like the the actual concert made my best. I'll talk about that later when we get there, but like that was that was uh Grant B sending a message to Dolby. I guess that's where that's I'm I'm giving this minus. I mean, I think that's sort of what we're supposed to think, but how does this really work? Like yeah. Grant B and Dolby have to have like some way of communicating with each other. Right. Like, like on the sly right now, you know, it's entire. Now, of course, you know, them, they want to keep some distance between themselves. So it's not like maybe they just are calling each other up, you know, daily. Mm -hmm. They have like secret weird meetings kind of stuff. But uh, so, yeah. Okay. So it's, I mean, it's at least possible that at this point, Grant B would have been tipped off by Dolby that, Hey, my guys are out there looking for you. Stay away from all your regular places. But it's possible also that he hasn't had a chance to get him that message. But if he, okay. If he if they are in regular communication, then you don't need to send them the secret flyer, the flyer message. If they aren't in regular communication, then this is just some random dude showing up out of nowhere. Why are you guessing that he works for Grant B or working for Dolby? Uh -huh. So either... Well, right. Why is who guessing that he works for Grant Dolby? B? Why is Grant B? Why is Palmer, you're Grant B, right? Yeah. Palmer approaches you, says, we want to talk about something that went missing and uh, we're willing to pay, we're willing to deal or whatever. What are you thinking right now? Oh, then, well, maybe that's a clue that, that Grant B has been working on the previous 16 scientists. And and that's that's his meeting uh, message. That's the only thing I can think of, is that they've been doing this, and this flyer gets back to Grant B, or back to Dolby, and okay, this is where we're meeting to discuss payment. Yeah, but if you send this flyer back, whoever gets it 
shows up at that meeting. Well, I guess you got contingency plans. If Dalby shows up, then you can talk turkey with him. And if someone else shows up, you can, I don't know, play dumb. Right. Or or something weird like that. But it is it is true the Radcliffe abduction didn't go off as planned. The plan is to lift the scientist, brainwash him, and then put him back in public without anyone knowing that he was even missing. Oh, um, but that that guy that was with him found the dead bodyguard and a missing Radcliffe. Yeah. And that got word. I I see. I see. So it's my worst number three, I think, though, as far as just uh, tradecraft consistency, if you know that if Grant B knows that Dalby sent Palmer, then he doesn't need to send Dalby a secret message. And if he doesn't know that Dalby sent Palmer, then he doesn't know who he's sending his secret message to. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have to say about that. Um, then there's, uh, then there's, I think a stupid thing or, you know, completely just kind of out of the blue random thing to me. Um, Grampy's heavy looks like his bodyguard or something. That's house Martin gets picked up by special branch and special branch calls. Wook says, Hey, we got a red card on this guy. Want to talk to him? Blah, blah, blah. Um, Palmer goes on his way to the station. How do they know that Palmer's on his way? How does Team Red know that Palmer's on his way? Uh, what was House Martin arrested for? Why does House Martin need to die? This Just this whole thing, you know? Oh, like, yeah. His death was, like, weird to me. I don't understand. Uh, from what I understand, uh, House Martin got arrested for whatever, um, and and my guess is that he had to be killed because he had too much information. But none of that is expressed in the film. It's just, hey, we were... In fact, the killing just tells them that they're on the trail. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you. I, I was a little confused with that whole thing. Yeah, didn't like it. Um, so now, let's see. Uh, remind me, because my next note is about uh, them going over to the warehouse. And that was, uh, how did that come about? I don't even remember. How did, why did Palmer decide that the warehouse was important? It was something about it being the last, or that was where they got House Martin? Or that was the last place he'd been seen? Um, I think his whole thing about calling in, I forget what they call the technical term for it, but basically like a sort of a SWAT operation on the warehouse. Yeah. He he called like Palmer called in a special code for something and like uh, that brought in like a huge invasion of, of like, 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 yeah, it was like a huge raid on the, on the warehouse. But yeah, I, I, I can't figure. Let me let me see if I can find it right now. Like what what is it that? Because it would have been after the police station. Uh huh. I think it was just House Martin's last location. Oh yeah, that's, that's where, where he was arrested. Yeah, yeah, that's where he, they found him. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Sorry. Uh, the yeah he that's where they found him. Uh, was was around Sanderson's or whatever, and and uh, so that's where they got a raid. 
Right. Now, this uh, we'll, we'll realize later, or maybe only on rewatches, that this is a, a warehouse where they're doing the mind control experiment kind of thing in. Yeah. And the reason they need a warehouse is because part of it, uh, part of the process involves like uh, putting the subject into a cargo container and lifting them up off the ground mm-hmm. to give them, I don't know, some kind of sense of vertigo or not really sure how that's supposed to work. But they've got the big cross-shaped lift that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is used to do that stuff. So I guess I could assume that just the moment House Martin got picked up, they were like, okay, we got a clean house here. Get everyone out of here. Um Obviously, maybe the super heavy industrial stuff, like the cross lift, is the hardest to move. So you leave that behind. You just get rid of all the real uh, mind controly, implicative type stuff. Um, along the way, apparently, someone thinks it's a great idea to toss uh, the tape. And this is an audio tape that just has some weird psychedelic sounds on it. That's again, <laughs> yeah. Some mysterious part of the hypnosis process, uh, which is labeled Ipcress. And someone decides it's a good idea to throw it into a stove uh, before they leave. Um, I don't like this. Uh, I don't, I don't like the thought process of whoever that person was. <laughs> um, right. You, you got all this other stuff you need to take with you. Take that. Yeah. Or, you know, if you need to destroy it, destroy it more convincingly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think this is just for the audience. Oh, we found a clue. You know, like you would think if they're going to pull everything out of the building, they would pull that with them and not burn it. It's presumably one of the most important clues in the movie. And the way it's found just feels extremely contrived to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, they listen to the tape. Who the hell's gonna be able to figure out what is on what this tape means? It's just yeah. a bunch of weird fucking space noises. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dolby does. Uh, you know, he puts a guy on the case. He says, "Open a file on it. That's gonna be our Ipcrest file." Um, he tells the sound engineer, "See what you can figure out." He does subtly interrupt Palmer's attempt to talk further with the sound engineer. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you, this is a movie where I really struggled to find positive spike points <laughs> of, any, of any kind. But I'll give my number three best to at least in this one case. This is the one time I see Dolby doing anything that would support the idea that he's the traitor. And yeah. all it is is just this one little thing of like, hey, you don't need to talk to that guy. Yeah. So I'll make that my best number three. And uh, and now after that foible, uh, Dolby's going to take Palmer to the band recital, which uh, you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked that he brought along Palmer for the negotiations of payment. Um uh, mind you, like I just said, I did not recognize the flyer was for that concert um, that had the phone number on it. But uh, this this really kind of covers Dolby a little bit. You know, why would he be meeting for the negotiation? Why wouldn't he keep big distance? It, it was an opportunity to have Palmer witness. It. You know, I think that's the only reason Palmer was there. And I guess the... The reasoning that, you know, Dolby could say, oh, I just need you there to back me up or he's on this operation, so he should probably be there. 
type of thing. And um, yeah, it, it, like I, I thought this was like a really good werewolf play. Like, yeah, like you saw me do the negotiations to buy the guy, you know. Okay. All right. That works for me. Yeah. Um, they're observed here, of course, by Drew Carey, <laughs> who was very surprised, very surprised to see him in this movie. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know he was that old. And man, he really, he really just hasn't, hasn't aged. Drew, Drew Carey as the CIA guy. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love how like both CIA agents are just like overwhelmingly like uh conspicuous. Just like here's this guy that's obviously staring at you, who has this giant piece of tape around the middle of his glasses. Oh, here's this like other dude that's obviously following you, you know, smoking a pipe, you know. Uh it, yeah, it's it, yeah. It, the yeah, he definitely looked like you carry. <laughs> right. They've they've both got their their little affects. Yeah. How many how many days do you think Drew Carey was sitting like right behind Grant B in the library for him to have <laughs> happened to have been there on the day that Palmer the day and the hour that Palmer showed up? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't like that either. Yeah. But uh yeah, they make a show, like you say, in front of Palmer for the uh, negotiation of the return of Radcliffe. And we have the big return of Radcliffe uh, scene, which is where we're going to break and we're going to go talk about some other characters up to this point in the film. But just putting a pin in the fact that this big show of returning Radcliffe is indeed a show. Dalby mm-hmm. and Grantby are, they're on the same team. They could have just, I don't know, they could have done this any number of ways. Yeah. Um, but like you say, they, they got to make, they got to keep up appearances. Yeah. <laughs> um, now let's go over and talk about Ross and uh, Courtney. Ross, of course, is our spy master type character for Team Blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, he suspects Dalby. Who knows for how long he suspected Dalby. And he's got, I don't know, his big brain idea is I'll take this insubordinate asshole that I can't stand uh, (laughs) being around and put him on Dalby's team and then just what? Wait and see what shakes out. Yeah. Well, I I kind of felt like uh, this might have been like, well, there's a couple things. Like sending the insubordinate guy, it's kind of like sending the bad apple into your enemy's territory. Um, but I also kind of saw this as like a very a meal. Like at the end of the film, I think the last, you know, when, when uh, Palmer complains about being used as a decoy, Ross is like, you know, well, I planned on you being insubordinate, but like, you know, uh, and then he's just like, yeah, but I could have been killed. He was like, well, that's what you get paid for, you know? Um, so I, 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 I'm guessing that's the plan is using Palmer to who's who's not a very organized or you know by the book type of guy he's going to shake up some cages and ruffle some feathers you know what i mean um just on his own so something's going to come out right yeah 
Um, that's, I mean, that's a noble attempt at justifying it. I, yeah, yeah, I, right. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's pretty sloppy. I'm, I have trouble thinking that Ross doesn't have anyone else that he could actually entrust with what the purpose of their mission is. I mean, right. I don't even think it's a great idea to send Palmer in there ignorant, in ignorance, mm-hmm. um, not even knowing like what he's supposed to be looking for. Um, of course, he's also got someone else that is already implanted with Dolby, right? Because we do, at the end of the day, we think Courtney is working for Ross. Are we in agreement with that? Oh, it's confirmed. Okay. Um, she kind of confirms it herself when they tease each other. And then Ross confirms it Well, at the end scene where it's like, do I shoot Ross or do I shoot Dolby? Um, Dolby and Ross both confirm it. Um which I, I actually marked as my number two best tradecraft. Uh, I've said this numerous times on our podcast that you need somebody to watch the Watchmen. Um, mm-hmm. It's an age-old tactic. It's an age-old like fail-safe. Like you want multiple people to come back with multiple pieces of information to verify your information. You also want to watch to make sure that your watchers aren't like you know, double agents or they're not fucking up or like, you know, they're doing their job. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like why we have like all kinds of different, like watchdog organization or we're supposed to, but like, that's the concept behind it. Right. So in the, the world of espionage, you're not going to send one guy. I think this is what my major complaints about, uh, uh, the spy w- w- uh, with Sasha Barry Cohen that we just recently did. Uh-huh. Like they, ju- they just sent like the one guy, like I yeah. would like to hope they could get a cook, you know, or a delivery guy or somebody over there. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I fail to find, you know, type of thing. So like with this, I really liked that. Not only like Ro- one Ross, isn't just sending Courtney to watch Palmer for like, uh, you know, Palmer fucking up or like being like shady. He's also sending her to kind of watch over him, like in a protective type of way, which is another reason why you send other people. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that, like at the end of the film, when she calls Ross, when he leaves to go on the train, you, you think that she's calling Ross and maybe Ross is the bad guy. She's actually calling Ross to be like, yo, he's out on the streets. Like you need to like, you know, I, or at least I, I'm kind of like extrapolating this. You know what I mean? Like the movie wants you to think that Courtney and Ross are the bad guy at this point. Later you find out Ross is actually the good guy. So thinking back, her phone call isn't to fuck over Palmer. It's to protect him. You know what I mean? And that's why I made it my number two best draft. Right. I feel a little, I feel a little manipulated by the phone call though, but you have a good point. Oh, oh, absolutely. uh, (laughs) The the point is, is protection. And that's a good one. Uh, But yeah, having her make that call to Ross, like right before we see Palmer get abducted, that is like, that is some like really blatant misdirection that doesn't sit well with me on a second watch. Right. Um, Me either. I I really don't like when films trick the audience in like a cheap way, and it and it kind of does feel like that. This but, is about as cheap. This is about as cheap as it gets. Right. <laughs> um. But I agree. I agree. The Courtney interaction with Palmer is really good. 
it's my best uh, tradecraft. Um, not just for the reasons that you mentioned, but also uh, this, it, it all comes down to this part where they're teasing each other of like, you know, oh, you're working for Ross. And she's like, no, you're working for Ross. I'm working for Dolby. He's like, no, <laughs> I'm working for Dolby. You're working for Ross. And I actually kind of like that they just kind of shrug it off. Yeah. Like, yeah, who knows? Who cares? Yeah. Uh, but but we all know that we, we both know we've possibly got our eyes on each other. Right. And, and suspicions. Um you know, why not fuck at the same time? Sure. <laughs> also, too, though, if she's clandestinely working for Ross, I'd prefer that she had a, a... I've complained about this once before. I forget in what movie, but if she's... Clen, I mean, she is clandestinely working for Ross. She should have a, a more direct and secure line of communication than uh, having to call his secretary and, and ask to talk to him. You know what I mean? Maybe not. What do you, Oh, 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 you mean instead of her just directly call? I, I see. Uh, like if she like, like kind of like a, a drop or something. Yeah. But this is kind of like an emergency situation. And we're, we're talking about older film you know, spy film type of it's, stuff. It's definitely an older era. Yeah. I, I just, <laughs> I just, I just want to try to avoid grading it on a curve. Right. Um, <laughs> for, for that reason. Yeah. Um, it's a good, in a, in a, in a movie that is actually pretty funny. I found this movie funnier. I think I've, I ended up going through it about three times. This movie got funnier to me every time I watched it. <laughs> Even though I was actually actually kind of bored by it, the first half of the first watch through, yeah, me too. And and but going through finishing it, I was like, yeah, that was good. And then second watch, I was like, this is better. And third watch is where I really was like, yeah, I I I like this movie. <laughs> um, but uh, the scene in the Safeway is really funny it's understatedly <laughs> hilarious yeah in a way that did, did like kind of flew over my head on the first watch yeah but especially and we talked about like the the britishism in this film this line of this delivery where uh ross picks up a can off the shelf looks at it and says i'm i, I don't even know if i can nail it but i'll try he says beefaroni extraordinary <laughs> yeah how yeah because how do you do that without cracking up right <laughs> but i i mean i think the idea like i guess this is when supermarkets first hit england and that and that's like the joke for that whole scene because he even mentions like I, I i don't like this new way of shopping or whatever uh versus like you know we see palmer is like you know diving like head first into like the the supermarket like that's what i gather from this scene and and you're right like just like the the little jokes of them grabbing brands and making crap and then like ross grabs the baby food and that's what really triggers like oh he wasn't actually there shopping you know like mm -hmm. it, like oh I right yeah, yeah that's baby yeah. food sir yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i completely agree with you that scene is absolutely hilarious you know, there's a secret history of supermarkets as being part of the um, 
you know, uh, the propaganda as a propaganda weapon in the Cold War uh, was to really, really showcase these this conspicuous, cons- you know, glorious, grand consumption that we have in the West. And, oh. and to make it really like like obvious and and advertise it and make the Soviets look at it and say like wow our shit sucks, right? You know, and then you'll you, with the like I think in the Americans there's that scene uh, crap I forgot her name but like uh, that one dude secretary oh yeah 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 the secretary yeah where she ends up going back to Russia and there's just empty shelves you know which I think is what mostly is brought up in a debate between uh, like, you know, a democracy and a communism or like a capitalism Uh and a communism is that getting, just getting shit, you know, that you need, let alone want, like is, is not easy. You know what I mean? Because you're trying to efficient, like in a, in, in, in like a communist economy, you try the, the government quote unquote has to efficiently determine what needs to be produced. And, and you end up with a lot of uh, uh, surpluses and a lot of shortages versus like, you know, in a, in a capitalism, the businesses are responsible, you know, like letting the market, you know, not that I'm getting on a soapbox here for propaganda, but I'm just saying you brought this up as far as like a, a propaganda machine like that, that tends to be the argument that's brought up. You know what I mean? Where like, let the markets do what they do so that things can be produced that are needed versus like trying to guess what needs to be produced. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that point up. Cause I didn't even, I didn't even piece that together. I, I was just like laughing my ass off at that scene. <laughs> now he's here to, um, you know, he, uh, Ross is here because he knows about the Ipcrest file mm-hmm. and he wants Palmer to microfilm it. By the way, I didn't know that microfilm was just tiny film. Like it's right there in the name, right? And you know, we have microfilm show up in so many spy films. Like microfilm is practically like a, a spy movie trope, right? Like we, we don't ever talk about microfilm unless we're talking about a spy story. Right. And I don't know why I always thought it was like some special something, but it's just, tiny the film you put in really tiny cameras it's microfilm. <laughs> the penny has dropped <laughs> i i got this far in life without knowing that uh, he wants him to film it he gives him a little camera palmer rejects ross insists and threatens but he lets palmer leave without the camera now you know supposedly okay so, so the thing is, Palmer actually like got in what? real trouble. Mind you, he is okay. wearing the blue tie. Okay. In this scene, because uh, we did talk about the red and blue. I, 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 so sorry to cut you off, but keep going. But let's let's put a pit. Like he is wearing a blue tie in this scene. If we're gonna try and look at the colors, which which would let us like if you're watching the team colors, this would let us know that he's actually the good guy, even though he looks like a bad guy. Anyway, sorry. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Great. Um, so Palmer, you know, didn't just have a troubled military history. Like he like got, uh, like thrown in jail or something. Like he got yeah. involved in some criminal shit. Yeah. And <laughs> that's supposed to, that's supposed to like, for one thing, let us know. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, Dalby mentions like, you know, that, uh, 
I don't know, cr- I don't want to, criminal creativity might actually come in use. Yeah. Um, is, is part of why Ross is picking him for it. But it's also the fact that he's got this leverage on Palmer that he could, well, I, I guess I don't know exactly how the leverage works. I'm pretty sure we're going to find out more about it in the TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the TV series might even start out with, like the book does, with actually going through like the stuff that uh, Palmer was involved with in the military. But it it just it boils down to supposedly he's got some kind of leverage, like a snap of his fingers, and you're in big fucking trouble, son. Yeah. <laughs> um, if that's true, why does he let Palmer leave without the camera? Like he's he's like he's basically admitting he's toothless. Palmer's calling his bluff, and he's not doing anything about it. So if part of the reason he picked Palmer was, you know, well, I've got leverage on this guy. I can control him. Like you just found out you don't. Well, later, later in the film, uh, at the end scene with deciding who to shoot, uh, he, he brought up that he was testing him. Right. So unpack that and see if you can justify that. I mean, first of all, do you think it's true? You could say anything at gunpoint. Oh, oh, well, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He could have just brought it up, but you know what I liked about the end scene with that, like, who do I shoot? Like you notice Ross isn't saying a whole lot. He he's given like this eye to Palmer. Like he trusts Palmer to be Palmer. That's probably like you brought, you brought up earlier, like why send Palmer on this mission in ignorance? And you know, if, if, if you've made it to that level of a rank in intelligence, I would like to hope you you know your agents, right? Like like I, I hope, you know what I okay. mean? That, okay. that that you've got like a psychological profile on them to understand. You know what I mean? So um th- that's that's kind of my guess. And th- that's why I like the the end scene is and that I think is what the we as the audience is supposed to understand is that Dolby is constantly throwing shade on Ross and Ross is kind of defending himself and throwing a little bit of shade, but like he gives these looks to Palmer. Like he, like, I don't know if he's looking into Palmer's eyes or if he's, if we're supposed to think he's thinking like, like we're supposed to understand that he knows Palmer well enough. And and then we get the line. I I knew I could trust you to be an insubordinate bastard, you know, type of, you know, and I, Unpacking that now that I'm thinking about it, I, I still don't understand what the point of the camera thing is, other than because um, what is he testing him on? Like maybe maybe he's checking in on him. Yeah, like what does it mean to like what does the test prove if it's a if it's a positive if Palmer agrees to to film the thing? Then that proves what that Palmer can be pushed around, or does it prove that Palmer is actually loyal to Ross? Um, yeah, it sound it looks and sounds better on the screen than it does to think about. It's an icebox thing for me. This movie is all icebox. This, 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 is, a, this is a full, big fucking icebox of a movie. Yeah, um, yeah, the, the, the those icebox moments. Um, yeah, they we, we brought that up in our uh, the man who knew too much. Hitchcock. Yeah, it was Hitchcock that brought up the icebox moments. Yeah, like hold on, let me let me do a little bit. Sure, go for it. If he if he he agrees to take the pictures, he's kind of demonstrating that he's loyal to Ross. 
right? Mm-hmm. If he if he does what he does and denies the pictures, he's kind of demonstrating that he's loyal to Dalby, or he doesn't feel comfortable at the very least. So doesn't feel comfortable. So what information is he gaining out of that? So maybe he was lying at gunpoint and really did want him to take the pictures because he didn't trust. He he did say, I I didn't trust this one since the, you know, I've been on to him for a while. Um, The only thing I can think of is he's checking up on him, but you're right. What is the, the picture taking actually prove? Like it makes so much sense to me that it's Alfred Hitchcock that coined the icebox moment, uh, idea which is you know since it's been so long since we talked about it that's the idea that you see a movie everything seems like it makes sense and then it's later when you're like you know it's hours later when you're pulling a beer out of the icebox because they didn't have refrigerators back then yeah. <laughs> um that you're like hey wait a second and it it makes sense that that's hitchcock because hitch hitch all of hitchcock's stuff makes sense like it's airtight and i love I, I do really appreciate a good icebox moment proof plot. And this is not that. Yeah. Uh, the reasons I like this movie are, are entirely uh, uh, aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I would say. Um, okay. Palmer, Palmer, Palmer is who we should talk about a little bit more. Now uh, you got some notes here on his, uh, his when we initially meet him yeah we we've after after the abduction of radcliffe um you know we we meet uh palmer waking up to drink a coffee and then he goes to his surveillance job he like kicks down the door and the dude's sleeping um and i and i guess that's why i'm saying like we start out with like this kind of bottom of the level i guess like where his job is just showing up and looking through a telescope all day and recording what he's seeing um, I did want to mark this as my number two worst tradecraft because the guy whose shift he's taking over is basically asleep and he's by himself. And I, I'd like to think if you're on surveillance, you shouldn't be sleeping. You should be watching at all times in case anything happens. And I don't know why you would have one guy. Wouldn't you usually have like two guys and they just like become buddies like this just is like the beginning of a buddy cop film where they're just stuck in like a tiny room and they hate each other. And then like they become buddies. I, I don't know, but I, I don't know. I, I had to mark this as my number two worst tradecraft Cause it just, right. it just, yeah. I did kind of like the implication, or at least I got the feel that there were three of them in rotation. So maybe they're working like three, eight hour shifts. And it's just like the one guy is annoyed that comes to relieve Palmer that he's been pulled in so early, by the way, also no reason for that. There's no urgency here to, to interrupt the survey to the interrupt the surveillance shift. Oh, to uh, pull Palmer out. Yeah. yeah. To pull Palmer out. Like what? Just wait until he's done. Yeah. Uh, it'd be fine. It's not yeah. like, it's not like there's a fucking ticking bomb out there somewhere. Yeah. Or anything like that. Uh, I mentioned before, oh, and then too, like, I don't know. It, it doesn't give me any indication, you know, if this is his assignment, this really, really boring looking, super low level, I could do it fucking yeah. surveillance job. Yeah, yeah. There's no indication here of that Palmer is 
exhibited at least to his superiors any kind of genius at tradecraft. Right. You know, if if they're given Maybe that's why it isn't closed doors. <laughs> he doesn't he this this is a man that will not close the door until you tell him to. Yeah. That's for sure. Um I mentioned so that's why I say I mentioned before also like you know Palmer going off script and checking in with the police and finding out about the parking tickets again seems like super basic detective work. Um we mentioned let's mention circle back to Drew Carey CIA is also watching Grant B but they haven't informed the British that they're in London watching Grant B why is the CIA here why haven't they informed the British no fucking clue. Uh, I actually marked this as my number three worst tradecraft, but I'm not sure if it is. Uh, during this period of time, I believe we had a good relationship with British intelligence. Um, in fact, I think they helped us establish our intelligence. So we had already like kind of had like an agreement, you know, and considering this is post World War II, this would have been like NATO like uh, beginnings, right? So why didn't they inform them? But, I mean, if you're trying to figure out what the hell is going on, maybe you don't inform them. I don't know. I wanted to discuss this with you. It, 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 it's kind of annoying that, that I think the whole scene – well, actually, I think both CIA guys were just – didn't belong in the film. I don't, I don't know what their purpose was. It was just right. kind of like right. a side Yes, trap. I agree. Yeah. Um, but – I mean, if you're going to have these guys and then like one of them gets shot because he was just in the shadows, I, I mean, should should they have informed the British? I would think so, considering the time period because of like our relationship. But if you're worried that something funny is going on, then maybe you might want to be covert. You know what I mean? Yeah, but somebody, yeah, if you, you know, if you if you have the suspicion that somebody uh on, you know, uh your allied team, you know that somebody in that agency is is double dealing, then of course it's very difficult to know exactly who you can announce yourself to. Right. Um but I agree CIA doesn't belong in this movie. They they don't really serve a purpose. Um I want to give and uh, you know, I mean this is blatant grading on a curve but let's take for a moment compared to the other 60s movies we're getting compared especially to bond this is i think the first film in uh in our timeline of movies that we've covered where we actually do have some kind of like mole situations going on and uh allied agencies not necessarily keeping each other in the loop in a way that really seems to as much as it feels like it's a little shrugged off to us in this film i think it's at least a lot better than its contemporaries at at just kind of having those themes in it Mm -hmm. um you know having a i don't think there's there's really not any like there's no bond film up to this point or or for a while where it turns out that someone on, you know, Team Blue was actually the whole time working for Team Red. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there is that. But, 
Yeah, and then further, I'll go with my worst number two tradecraft here. I'm kind of packaging a couple thing, a few things together. This is again the prisoner, or not the prisoner exchange. The it's a prisoner purchase, I guess. Right. Which which is where we're gonna uh, bring all these characters back together and and then talk about the end game. But pretty much the last thing that happens here is a whole pile of wrong. Um, <laughs> Drew, okay, I okay. Drew Carey's monitoring the in the parking garage where they do the thing. Okay, you could do that. Uh, you could have done it a lot more subtly. Um, even if, okay, even if you did it stupidly, which apparently he did in a way that Harry Palmer spots him. Harry Palmer stupidly just fucking opens fire on the guy, <laughs> right? Kills him, which is crazy dumb. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dolby just walks over, checks the guy's wallet, and says, "Oh, you just killed an American agent. Why does the guy have like what does it say? Fucking, does he have a badge that says yeah. CIA? <laughs> um, Pretty much. I mean, well, this might be like a diplomatic immunity type of situation, but yeah, you're right. Why are you why why are you hanging out with your badge in a parking lot? Uh, you're right." Yeah, that's annoying. Yeah, <laughs> if you knew, if you knew enough to be here in the first place, because remember, Drew Carey uh, basically observed the agreement. Yeah, between you know the the show the showy because it was all for Palmer's benefit. Mm-hmm. We're imagining because Dolby and Grant B are working together. Drew Carey observed them make that arrangement. So he doesn't need to be in the parking garage. He, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't need to check to see if they do what they said they were going to do. You could just, <laughs> you know, report back. Like you just report what you know. You're, you're right. fine. Yeah. So yeah, bunch, bunch of dumb there. And then from there, once we have Radcliffe in hand, and it, this is only about halfway through the movie, but I think we can speed up here now that we've kind of like established all the characters and who they are. Cause up till now, uh, at least on your first watch, like you don't know what the fuck is going on. Like there's <laughs> really no, there's really no clues that are tying in together. Mm-hmm. Finally, we get the clue. Once we have Radcliffe back in hand and, uh, we see that he goes all funny in the head when he tries to talk physics. And this is our big clue of like, what's really going on. A clue that the, uh, the secret plot is to like erase the brains of the scientists. Um, CIA tailed that, uh, meeting or, or event. Um, (laughs) CIA. I don't. I'm done talking about the CIA. Really. <laughs> uh, here, here's where I'll go with this. Somewhere along the way, now I'm going to call him Scottish guy because I memorized enough names already. But this is the. Are you one... talking about Jock? Jock. Okay. Yeah. Does all right. We 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 give him a name. Sure, Jock. He's kind um, of been like a buddy for Palmer at this point. Sure. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, he has magically figured out. Ipcress. And by magically, I mean fucking magically. There's <laughs> no uh, connective tissue at all. 
you know, he just shows him this book, which is, oh God, I should have written it down, but the, the title of the book kind of, sort of, you could, if you squinted and thought about it way too hard, you could come out with the words, with the letters Ipcress mm-hmm. and how he, you know, uh, connected that, you know, what they had the tape. Now he's got a book. Where did the book come from? It just really pisses me off. It's my number one worst tradecraft of the movie just because it's, and maybe it shouldn't even be in the tradecraft bucket. It should just be in like plot consistency. It should just be in like respect me as an audience member. It's the most important thing that happens in the film and we have no idea how or where it happened. Um, But he does it. He figures out that's the thing. He goes off and gets killed by somebody who's mistaken him for Palmer, apparently. Meanwhile, Uh also somebody steals the file and somebody kills the other CIA guy. Who is somebody in all of this? Uh, I guess it's Grant being the Soviets. Probably. I, I don't. But I mean, there was so many opportunities to kill Palmer why didn't they just kill Palmer then? Right. Like, why are they waiting for this moment? Other than they were trying to frame him for the murder of the second CIA agent. Um, but if that's the case, uh, I don't. I don't understand what the framing accomplishes, other than discrediting him. But to who? It's not going to discredit him to Ross. Or Dolby, because they know that he's working for them, trying to figure something out. Is it going to discredit him to the Americans? But the Americans don't even really have a stake in this. They're just randomly in the story. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, there's some slight plus spy points I could give for the frame job. Uh, again, in a movie where I struggled to find any. A good tradecraft, um, you know, kill a guy in in somebody's apartment. Uh, it's <laughs> gonna look bad for them. Um, I guess in a better explained movie, maybe there's this whole interconnected. Uh, well, again, it falls apart by the fact that they killed Jock, thinking they were trying to kill Palmer. Because if that's their goal, they should just, like you said, kill Palmer. Mm-hmm. But if they also, if they had. This other plan, which is very, uh, you know, we have to do a lot of extrapolation to imagine it, to imagine that uh, Palmer is the one that stole the Ipcrest file. Palmer is the one that killed Drew Carey on purpose and then killed the other CIA guy on purpose. And (laughs) then you mind control Palmer into killing Ross. Uh, You know, that's that's a that's a cool chain of uh of events and i'm hoping the tv series like actually has that in it and has it explained right uh we mentioned before this is where uh palmer realizes like uh someone's trying to frame him someone's trying to make him look bad um so he's gonna try to get out of town uh despite having a million reasons to distrust courtney he's Mm -hmm. gonna tell her where she's going or tell her where he's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when Dolby lets Ross know 
about their their concerns about Palmer. They had this stupid, to me, notion of like, well, if Palmer's dirty, we'll just let the CIA handle it and we won't have to. <laughs> right. Fuck you. Do your do your jobs. Yeah. At this point, Palmer's picked up on the train. Um and uh, again we were talking earlier that we were kind of angry about the movie tricking us because we probably think it's Ross that's picking him up and then we later discover like uh, you know of course it was Dolby but um, on the train you know uh, I guess he's running he left Courtney's place I guess he had a reason to suspect her and that's why he didn't want to stay with her Um, but on the train, he's in his like little cubby room or whatever, and a knock on the door. He pulls his gun out. He's like, who is it? And they're like, tickets, please. And he's like, oh, okay, let me put my gun away. Um, I wanted to mark this as my number one worst trade craft uh, or, I guess, safety craft or something. Sure. Like, Yeah, like he didn't have to open the door completely wide open because now the dude just puts a gun in his throat. Like, you know, uh he he could have slightly pulled it open and had his gun at his hip, like hidden in some sort of way. Cause if it was the ticket guy, he would recognize it right away. And if it wasn't the ticket guy, there'd be a gun in his face. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. Pretty hand wavy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, once he's, uh, abducted, you know, um, we find out, uh, well, he's put in this cell. We still don't know who it is. Oh, no, that's right. We do see it's Grampy. Um, he, they, they basically starve him and freeze him for the most part until he's kind of weak. And then put, then finally put him into like this, like a uh, uh, sensory deprivation box. Like yeah. I, it's just a box. And then they're projecting weird patterns on the wall and they're playing the spacey hip crust music. And then you got Grant B doing the old school hypnosis because, you know, with like the forties, fifties, sixties, and seventies, like hypnosis could like just trick everybody. Uh-huh. So he's doing the like listen to my voice and calm down and blah blah blah. And uh, so this is when they start, um, I guess, the conditioning on him. Um, but I did want to point out uh, for my number three best trade craft. You know, we get this like montage of him, like just in the cell, being ripped out of the cell, being like, uh, um, basically given this like conditioning treatment. And he finds this nail because all over the wall, uh, there's like, you know, uh, chit marks and, you know, people writing words and stuff. And he finds a nail, I guess, in the bed. Um, so one of the times that they're putting the conditioning on. He's like moving his wrists around to cut them to cause pain, which I guess breaks all hypnosis. Um, I don't know if that was a thing back then, but uh, I guess that's his solution. So when they see him doing that, they pad the wrists. So he, he hides the nail going back in and just stabs himself in the hand with the nail. Um, So I wanted to mark that as my number three best tradecraft was, you know, They've they've tried to work around you using pain to break you, which I'm not sure that works, but or this conditioning method works, but regardless, the idea of him like you know like hiding a a, a nail that he could use to like stab himself. I mean, there could be there could be something to it in term, and I'm speak as a completely uneducated person on this topic, but 
you know, uh, people that cut themselves do it to, uh, in my understanding, is to like establish control. Of, oh, really? Of, of their situation, yeah. Like when when you when you're the one inflicting the pain, you're in control, and it's it's a, a lack of being in control that leads people into uh, cutting. Uh, you're talking about like self mutilation stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, like, like, like no, no, when you're saying cutting them, because uh, sorry, I, I, I might have like uh, not been following. You're yeah, talking about yeah, like, I, like, like those teenagers that cut themselves with like totally. pins and yeah, shit. Oh, okay, yeah, oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, that's my understanding of it. So that that kind of tracks for me that that he could use it that way. Right. Um, works for me in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, he does that. So he's got that, uh, I don't know, that element in there. And also he escapes before the conditioning is completely complete, at least in Grantby's estimation. Right. Um, But now that he's out, their plan is to have him call Ross to the warehouse and shoot Ross. Um, uh, You know, it's a... It's another of the very um, characteristic failure of this movie's plot that uh, we're never given any like a real reason for them to want Ross dead. Um, I mean, it's there. You can extrapolate it again. Right, I, right, right. I like I've said for the millionth time, I'm hoping <laughs> that the TV series fleshes this out better. But that's the idea. You're going to have him call Ross, meet him at the warehouse where the mind control stuff happens. Bad location for this because it's got clues, you know, like if things don't go well. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then Dolby needs to show up before Ross so he can use the code phrase. Now, listen to me, Palmer, shoot Ross. Uh Dolby shows up alone. I didn't like that. Ross shows up alone. Didn't really like that. And then we get the classic, uh, which one, which, which one to shoot? Should you shoot Dolby or should you shoot Ross? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I don't know. Take us home. Um, well, he, I guess, deduces that Ross is the good guy and shoots Dolby. Um, and like I said earlier, I, I think as an audience, we're supposed to believe it's because Dolby keeps trying to push the issue to him. And, and Ross has just made his like little bits of statements. I, I guess that's it. Like the lesson is like, don't talk too much. Yeah. Also the lesson is, I don't know, like uh, Palmer accidentally hurt, hurts his hand bumping against the projector or something. And Dolby goes for his gun. Like, it, I Oh, that that's right. Kind of. Really, yeah, really, really very lame and really very like uh, stuff that I expect from movies older than this. Yeah, um, you know, like where you can't, I don't know, it's well, it's also a kind of a you know, villain falling from great heights. Like, you can't, there's there's something about long time audiences being shy about seeing our hero murder someone. Right. <laughs> uh, even if even if it's you know they like deserve to be murdered or something. 
Mm-hmm. Like it ha- it always has to be like the villain at the last moment goes for their gun. So it was really self-defense. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would, I, I, I don't know. It's old and I'm tired of it. Even even when I see it again in a 1965 film, so I didn't really have anything else uh, for this film. I'm excited to debrief it, but uh, the floor is yours. If you got anything else to to detail about the plot and the tradecraft, no. Uh, other than one line, uh, apparently Dolby doesn't like pipe smokers because he's afraid of cancer, but cigarettes don't cause cancer. Really gives you the time because <laughs> everyone's smoking cigarettes. But I, I think it was uh, oh crap, I forgot her name. It was it was the older lady with the the hair. Oh uh, yeah, she's like you don't smoke pipes, do you? He's afraid she's of funny. cancer. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Back in the sixties, you were required to smoke. Yeah. <laughs> Agents, please report for debriefing on this operation. The director will see you now. Um, I, I, I like it for the, the British weight back and forth. Um, and I like it for, uh, the acting. I don't like it for the dialogue, even though I do like the, the wit comedy. Um, a lot of the dialogue was super on the nose. Um, uh, I really, really, really liked Dolby as a character and his, um, writing as far as him keeping up uh the mask of you know like hiding the fact that he's the bad guy i i thought there was a lot of moments with uh his interactions with palmer and his interactions with uh ross that 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 i think like you, you don't see a lot of that like internal kind of like going back and watching it again you wouldn't see it back then in filmmaking where if you actually like, you know, parsed it out, oh wow, he was thinking this while thinking that. I know you, you see this in books back at that time, but not really in film. You know what I mean? So I, I really liked that. Um, but I don't know that I would recommend this film to a lot of people. Uh, so I'm probably gonna just give it like a three and a half star rating. Yeah, I don't feel like I need to parse this one too hard. I'm going to go straight down the middle with a three. Uh, I agree. You know, there's no one there's no one out there I need to particularly recommend this to. If someone asked me about it, I would probably tell them mostly positive things. Right. Uh, if it was on and I was just chilling with my dad, we could watch it together. Uh, plot sucks. <laughs> really badly. Um, but uh, the directing, the editing, the score, I don't think we gave the score enough love. The score really uh, kind of, it's very, its especially in some points, very noirish mm. in a way that I like a lot. Uh, and, Michael, <laughs> and Michael Caine's performance. And also, you know, the performance of the guy that played Dolby. He is really fun to watch. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, those are all highlights of the film. Uh, yeah, flat out three. Don't need to see it again. Wouldn't be mad if I had to see it again. <laughs> um, review of Tradecraft. 
I struggled to find good stuff, but here's what I got. Number three best tradecraft from Todd. At least once I did get to see Dolby do something that he would do, uh, you know, if he was really the trader. And that was when he subtly interrupted Palmer's attempt to talk further with the sound engineer. That's Mm -hmm. so tiny. But that's the level of tradecraft I think we're talking about here. My number best three. My number two... Um, if it had been explained better, you know, the frame job, uh, kill the guy in the apartment looks bad for you. If they think Palmer's getting close to the case, you know, but I, you know, I don't, I want to go back to like why it, why it makes any sense that Jock is killed and we're led to believe that they thought they were killing Palmer because he was in his car. Because you know who had figured it out? Fucking Jock. So <laughs> uh, that's the guy they should have. Uh, my best. Uh, I like Courtney and Palmer's interaction. I like Courtney's whole placement. Um, she's a good character, especially in a spy movie of this era. Uh, my best number one. No more notes. Uh, my best number three tradecraft was uh, Palmer using the nail to create pain to prevent him from being like brainwashed. Uh, my number two best tradecraft was um, this. This I really, really liked um, was Ross using Courtney to watch Palmer both as kind of a safeguard as well as kind of, you know, checking in on him. Um, and then my number one best tradecraft uh, was the meeting at the concert. Uh, it was really good werewolf play where um, Dalby had Palmer be present to witness him negotiate the exchange for Redcliffe. So it kind of gives a little bit of cover for Dalby to not be the bad guy, even though he was. Number three worst tradecraft for me as basically a stand-in for this whole failure to make Dalby and Grantby's interaction make any kind of sense to me, uh, the flyer. Grantby passing over the flyer for reasons that, you know, I've already litigated, won't go into again. But what's the plan there? Doesn't make sense to me, minus spy points. And my number three worst over at number two. Uh, again, this is kind of a ball of stuff, like Palmer overreacting to Drew Carey. Drew Carey, of course, carrying ID, identifying himself as a CIA agent. Number one worst is just more of a global thing leveled against the film and not any particular character. The single most important insight of the film is that Ipcress stands for some kind of mind control juju, and it just fucking lands out of nowhere. <laughs> Yeah. Color me insulted. <laughs> uh, my number three worst tradecraft. Uh, I'm still not sure, but if I should, but the, just the CIA not communicating that they had agents tailing on the trade-off. Um, my number two worst tradecraft uh, was the surveillance sleeping. You would think they'd have a second guy or that you should be awake if you're on surveillance. Um, and then... My number one worst tradecraft was uh, Palmer putting the gun away after he just pulled it out because he was worried about who was knocking on his door and then, of course, opens the door and gets a gun in his face. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was pretty bad. It's not great. Doesn't sound like this movie is going to get a very high 
park bench rating from us. Park benches, of course, being our stand-in rating, one to five. We have been known to go down into the 0.5 previously uh, for movies that are truly horrendous. What, what What's an example of that? Oh, we got to Spy Kids and Our Man Flint. Well, this... <laughs> This is better than those. Yeah. So at least we're going to get a, a solid number, but uh, mine's going to be pretty low. Um, you know, like I'm not going to grade it on a curve. If I was grading it on a curve, like if, if this, if it was night, if we were making this podcast in 1965 and we only had access to spy movies from the beginning of time to 1965, this one might rate pretty highly, but, uh, you know, his, history is not kind to the, to the tradecraft here because I just don't think that the, you know, and it's a Zaltzman production, you know, this mm-hmm. is, it's got bond DNA in it. It's, you know, I, I want to say this too. I want to, I'm glad I, I remembered this, even though Palmer is put out as like, like an anti bond, He's still kind of playing in the same pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's 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 just a a pool of a different shape and a different color. Right. This is not Caray. I think somebody mentioned Palmer as being really a really cool middle point between James Bond and George Smiley, and I think that is exactly where he belongs and should be regarded. So. I want to I want to give him a higher rating than I mean I want to give him a higher rating than Bond but I really can't. I'm at a 2.5 on park benches. Oh, you were higher than I expected. Uh I I was two, I was looking two no two 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 two. Yeah. Well, we uh, okay. I don't want to be bound too much to stuff we've done before, but Russia with Love got a 2.5. But that's okay with me because, like, even though the tradecraft isn't great in this film, yeah. at least it exists or it's per- pretended to exist. Right. There wasn't yeah, a whole know. lot just... other than just checking up on stuff. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we should go here because we got a tip on this. Oh, we should go here and get a tip on this. Really? Well, Gr- Grant B and Dalby are doing some stuff behind the scenes. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I was thinking lower. Let's uh, hear it. I, th- I, I think it should be above our ones. Tomorrow Never Dies, Spies Like. Yeah, it's definitely better than our ones. The Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible 3. I don't know. Like, I, I'm looking at our other stuff for our twos, right? I need too much. Yeah, I see where you're going with the two point. I I don't know. I I, I want to put this in our one point five. I could I could go there. I could I could I could say one point five. I won't argue with that. Because with Lefemme Nikita and Red and Garrick, we had a lot of stuff. Like, but in this, it, it was mainly just checking up on tips. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. I I kind of want to go with a one point five on this. All right, let's call it. All right. And that is a movie episode, again, uh, of Spies Like Us podcast, of course. Um, 
again, still kind of annoyed at ITV that they haven't given us a hard date for the TV series. But uh, if you decided to listen to this first uh, and you are uh, doing it in anticipation of the TV series, all I can tell you is that it's coming soon. It might be the week after. It might be next week. It might. Well, no, it won't be next week. Um, but it'll be soon. It'll be soon. And we got to try to figure out how to fill the time uh, in between there. Um, David, if people do like this podcast, what should they do? Well, first of all, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can search Spies Like Us podcast and uh, we should pop up. Um, and uh, definitely let us know how we're doing. We're seeing your emails and getting back to them as soon as we can. Um, so let us know if you love us or you hate us, or if you have any suggestions for shows or film. We have an enormous list to get through, but we'd rather know what you want to hear and us, us talk about. So get back to us on that. You can uh, email us at spieslikeus.net or just tweet us at spies underscore like us or facebook.com slash spies like us podcast. All right. And uh, if you hate the podcast, tell an enemy that it's great. Um. <laughs> protocol 9 initiated this podcast will self-destruct in 20 seconds the preceding transmission sampled the songs ice cold by audio nautics enter the party by kevin mcleod and sound effects from freesound.org attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net editing by todd hostetler